I'm Lee Rowland. Welcome to At Liberty, the podcast where we discuss today's most important civil rights and civil liberties topics. Today, what's the deal with Florida? Ah, Florida. It's the third most populous state, the nation's fourth largest economy, and the earliest European settlement in the continental United States. It also seems to perpetually exist at the epicenter of the national conversation and news cycle. Our guest today, Howard Simon, has had a front row seat to the Florida show as the ACLU of Florida's longtime executive director. After 21 years in the Sunshine State and another two-plus decades at the ACLU of Michigan before that, Howard is the ACLU's longest-serving state director. He's retiring this month on the heels of yet another eventful election in the state of Florida. And despite having left damn near half a century ago, Howard still proudly sports an unmistakable New York accent, which you are about to hear. Howard? Welcome to the show. We're delighted to have you here today to discuss what makes Florida tick. Thank you, Lee. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. So I want to just ask you first for your reaction to this recent election in Florida. What do you make of what we saw in the midterms? Well, it was uh, this being Florida, of course, it's uh, puzzling. Very, very, very interesting. People have to understand Florida is several different states squeezed together within one boundary lines. I mean, we got the Old South and the Midwestern retirees and the uh, refugees from chaotic politics and economy in Central and South America and Northeastern um, retirees. And so there's so many different states squeezed together, and it makes for a very, very puzzling state. One of the things that is so puzzling is that we may have had a... Republican governor elected and a Republican senator elected, those votes were virtually 50-50. At the same time, um, about 65% of the voters voted for a constitutional amendment that we have worked on for years and years and years to end the system of lifetime felon disfranchisement. So way more people voted for the constitutional amendment to uh, restore the right to vote then voted for the candidates who were the champions of the restriction on the right to vote. The real story here, I think, is Florida is just such an ideologically divided and polarized state. It's virtually 50-50. One of the comedians quipped that um, if there was a measure on the ballot in Florida between a free scoop of chocolate ice cream and a kick in the head. The chocolate ice cream free scoop may win by about 50.1 to 49.9. So, okay, I buy that. How the hell did the ballot initiative restoring voting rights to people with felony convictions get 65 in that environment? What what are your thoughts about how that resonated with two-thirds of the electorate? Well, I feel really good about that. Obviously, I've worked on this issue for here in Florida for 18 years since the disputed 2000 election. And I think the real reason is that um, we would not have won without conservative votes, obviously. And we got those conservative votes by making this campaign only around 
a single moral issue, the issue of second chances. And because it was restricted to that, we were supported by the Christian Coalition, Koch Brothers Freedom Works, the Conference of Catholic Bishops. This was the broadest coalition coming to support any measure that I can recall in history. Do you think there is a lesson there or hope on the horizon for other criminal justice issues or even beyond that really focus on this kind of message of moral clarity? Oh, yeah. There is a lesson here. There's a lesson about finding a message that appeals across the board and have the discipline to stick to it and so that you don't alienate allies who you really need. I mean, in Florida, as I said, the Republican governor ran for the U.S. Senate. He was the champion of the atrocious status quo that led to the lifetime voting ban for maybe 1.5 million people. He got about 50% of the vote, but the number of people who voted to reform that system, essentially repudiating what the governor is responsible for, was 65% of the electorate. You can only win by a broad-based across-the-aisle ideological coalition. And that, I think, is the message in here. What comes next, Howard? Are there concerns about how state officials are going to actually apply this constitutional amendment now that the voters have passed it? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, it was not 24 hours until uh, the next controversy started. And the next controversy was about whether the legislature was going to try to insert itself, whether state officials, whether the Secretary of State, the Division of Elections, any public official would erect barriers. So here's the problem. The problem is that state leaders, namely 20 years of of conservative governors and 20 years of legislature hostile to the extension of voting rights, have opposed this measure. But the measure was written, and I was on a committee of three people that spent a year and a half crafting this language. The measure was written to be about as self-executing as possible. It does not need, in fact, it is intended to exclude any role for the legislature, any role for state officials. People who have a felony conviction and who have completed all the terms of their sentence on January 8th, when this new measure goes into effect, should be able to go down to their supervisor of elections and affirm that their rights have been restored because on Tuesday, Election Day 2018, their rights were restored. Now, that's opposition. I'm sure the legislature will push back, and we'll see how that unfolds. And uh, that may now move from the electoral uh, arena to the legislative arena to maybe ultimately the courts. Assuming that this does result in the reenfranchisement of a significant number of people, you know, up to the 1.4 million eligible, how do you think that's going to change the nature of elections going forward in Florida? I do think this is a transformative change in Florida. It will change Florida forever. 
the system of lifetime felon disfranchisement, which has been embedded in our Constitution for 150 years. It's embedded in the Constitutions. It was in four states, now just three, but uh, Iowa, Kentucky, Virginia, and Florida, but no longer in, in Florida. It is going to transform our state. Exactly how it will transform our state, I want to say nobody really knows, because nobody really knows what the political leanings are of the 1.4 million who may be refranchised. If you read the newspapers, you notice that Florida has close elections. If only 10%. I think if you're conscious and alive in America, you know (laughs) that Florida has close elections. If just 10% of the people who are newly refranchised uh, decide to participate in democratic elections, that's 140,000 new voters. But I think it'll be much larger than that. But nobody knows what the political leanings are, and anybody who does, I think, is pretending. I do think it'll play a role, God, I hope it'll play a role in the next general election, which is 2020. So to say that there are close elections in Florida is probably a comical understatement, as we're sitting here talking, uh, both the races for uh, U.S. Senate and Florida governor are still being tabulated. I've seen many allegations in the media that elections are not running as they should, right? Either because of ballot design, either because of manual counting problems. Um, and and this sounds so familiar, uh, spe- especially for those of us who were alive and paying attention in 2000. This is a very similar refrain. Our Florida elections fundamentally administered in a dysfunctional manner? Or is it only because it's so close every time and the nation's always watching that we kind of get a view of how the sausage is being made in the days after elections? Has Florida changed at all since the 2000 debacle? Yes. Oh, my God, it has. Uh, There's so much to say about this. Uh, First of all, number one, you have to factor in there's maybe a good deal of incompetence you referenced that already, but you also have to reference the fact that some of this is normal and not the fault of election administrators, meaning by that, that when people vote a provisional ballot or when people's mail-in ballot has a signature problem, those have to go to a what's called a board of canvassers county by county, and they have to make a uh, individualized judgment about whether every ballot counts. That's part of the system. That That's part of the law. I have to say that this is exposed because the elections in Florida are so close, because the population in Florida is so ideologically divided. I would bet you if you scratch the surface in any state, there are going to be problems in election administration. Problems in election administration are exposed when you have very close elections. I do want to say this, as bad as it may sound now, it has gotten so much better I think in the 2008 election was the first time that everybody in Florida voted using the same technology. The 2000 election was won by the uh, flawed punch card system mm-hmm. in uh, that with the hanging chads. 
That was replaced by the paperless ATM type machines in which a recount is impossible. And we went to the legislature after there was so many problems with the paperless ATM machines that we got the legislature and the governor to fund the transition to what is a kind of paper-based, fill-in-the-bubble, optical scan reader system. So there are far fewer, I know this may sound hard to believe, but far fewer problems with Florida elections now than there were uh, many years ago. Well, I suspect we could fill up the entire podcast easily just (laughs) talking about the dysfunction and spectacle of Florida elections, but you've had such a kind of rich view of far more than just elections in your time at the ACLU. We've mentioned Bush v. Gore. That was obviously a gangbusters case that riveted the nation, but it's by no means the only standout. Uh, You guys had the high-profile right-to-die case involving Terry Schiavo, the Elian Gonzalez case, a precursor of family separation. You know, The Onion has a recurring character named Florida Man to embody, I think, one of the most (laughs) ridiculous political stories about America and America's particular dysfunction. It feels to me that Florida has an above-average percentage of the American news cycle. Does it feel like that living there, too? (laughs) Oh, my God, yes. So many journalists here have written books about collecting all the crazy stories of Florida. Yes, there are many of them, Um, which means that the fight for civil rights and civil liberties is just essential here because there is so much uh, crazy stuff. You know, like former Governor Jeb Bush outrageously using the machinery of government to sustain someone artificially against her wishes, as was found by the court in the Terry Schiavo case that you mentioned. Can you tell folks a little bit about that case? It's been a while now. We may have listeners who who don't know who Terry Schiavo is. Tell us about her. Well, she had a catastrophic uh, accident, collapsed, essentially was in a vegetative state for years. Uh, There was a family dispute basically between the brother and the husband and parents. And after six years of litigation, six years, a conservative Republican Baptist judge in the St. Petersburg area determined from her express statements that she would not have wanted to be sustained artificially in a persistent vegetative state and allowed for the uh, machinery to be withdrawn and allow her to die peacefully. At that point, Governor Jeb Bush, exercising, I think, was, was some combination of political and religious ideology, got authority from uh, both the Florida State Legislature and the United States Congress and his brother, who was then President George Bush, to use the machinery of government to essentially seize her and uh, insert a feeding tube. And I mean, it is a sad, horrible, tragic story. The autopsy uh, ultimately revealed that she had been brain dead for quite some time. This was just maybe the worst abuse of uh, governmental power I can recall. But look, that's a sad saga. There are a lot of things to celebrate uh, here in Florida. We were, I think, the last state to have a ban 
on adoptions by otherwise qualified lesbians and gay men. We ended that. We ended the uh, ban on same-sex marriage six months before the U.S. Supreme Court recognized that as a right of people nationwide. I think folks might be surprised to hear that Florida was the last state to maintain a ban on adoption by same-sex couples. Well, Florida was where political homophobia began. It began in the 1970s with Anita Bryant, uh, the orange juice queen. In the late 1970s, I think it was 1977 maybe, Mm -hmm. the Miami-Dade County Commission was one of the first jurisdictions to enact a comprehensive human rights ordinance extending civil rights protections to the LGBTQ community. Anita Bryant led a movement to overturn that by referendum, went to the legislature and and got the legislature to impose a ban on adoptions. And it took more than 20 years to uh, overturn, to get the Miami-Dade Board of County Commissioners to reenact the human rights ordinance. And it took the ACLU about five lawsuits and eight years of litigation to overturn the adoption ban. Wow. I would never have guessed that Florida was the place we could pinpoint as kind of the birthplace of political homophobia. Where does the state sit generally on other social justice issues? Well, um, <laughs> it sits firmly up for grabs. 49.9 to 50.1? <laughs> No, what I mean by that is we have a strong state constitution. We're one of about, I think, a dozen states that have a separate, freestanding constitutional right of privacy. Uh, That right of privacy was written and drafted by a state senator who was um, a, a former ACLU board member. And it was adopted by the people in 1980. And that right of privacy has been used by us for years, decades, to strike down restrictions on women's access to abortion. We have a strong separation of church and state clause. Maybe about 36 states have this, about prohibiting monies for churches and sectarian institutions. And the Florida Supreme Court has been the one institution that has been a uh, a bulwark against efforts by governors and efforts by the legislature to essentially ignore the right of privacy and the state requirement of separation of church and state. Whoever is the new governor will be appointing three new members of the Florida Supreme Court, which is going to change the Florida Supreme Court and maybe change, maybe change the understanding of Florida constitutional issues for a generation. That's why I say we're in the camp of totally up for grabs. What about immigration? I've seen some studies that indicated in this past midterm election that immigration was ranked as a number one or number two issue for a majority of Floridians. But I presume that immigration feels a little different in Florida. How do people think about immigration given Florida's complex makeup? And, you know, how have you heard people respond to the immigration debate largely centering on a wall across the southern border? Well, I have to tell you in all honesty, it depends on where you're asking that question. If you're asking that question in North Florida, 
I think there's been a lot of exploitation of this fear of the immigrants coming to take our jobs and reduce our uh, wages and things like that. If you're talking central Florida, you know, the businesses are dependent upon immigrants. If you're talking about South Florida, especially Miami-Dade County, where so many people are born elsewhere, and many of them are born in other countries. It's an interesting political battle within the Florida Republican Party, because when the Florida Republican Party tries to repeat some of the hateful things about immigrants and immigration that come out of this White House, there's some resistance to it in South Florida. So we have not been one of those states that have passed really horrible anti-immigrant laws, mainly because of the resistance to that by the South Florida and Miami Republican caucus in our legislature. There's another moment from 2000 um, that feels really current in this moment that involved the separation of an immigrant child from his parent. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about who Elian Gonzalez is and what happened to him in Florida? Wow, that that was a worldwide story too. That uh, that happened here. Uh, Don't so many of them, Howard. Thousands of immigrants from Cuba risked their lives in you know uh, small boats where they overturned and were killed in the Straits of Florida and so on. And that's what happened to Elian Gonzalez's mother. And he was found by people out fishing, and he was in an inner tube. And he had relatives in in, uh, Miami. He was uh, put in what was supposed to be the temporary care of his Miami relatives. Of course, he had a father back in Cuba. And this was all symbolism about whether he was going to be returned to his father, which many of the Cuban community here in Miami saw as a victory for Castro, or whether he would stay in Miami and would be a victory for the exile community, ultimately because the relatives refused to surrender him. The attorney general, then Janet Reno, had to essentially raid the house of the relatives and seize the child and reunite Elian Gonzalez with his father, who then took him back to their home in Cuba. Did the ACLU take any position or play any role in that case? Yes, uh, we, we did. <laughs> uh, Befitting the ACLU, I want to say uh, with a great amount of pride that we came down squarely on both sides. <laughs> <laughs> and let me say what I what I mean by that. The first issue is: Does an unaccompanied minor have access to the courts to seek asylum? Uh, that was the legal issue that was in the federal courts. The attorneys for the family argued that, wait, don't quickly return him uh, to his father and send him back to Cuba. This is an unaccompanied minor, and an unaccompanied minor should have access to the federal courts in order to be able, or with some with help and someone on his behalf, seek asylum in this country. And we argued that, of course, unaccompanied minors should be able to assert asylum. But once he asserts asylum, the issue is, do the rights of parents intervene? And there was no evidence whatsoever that this father was a bad father. They did not abandon him, did not abuse him, uh, and should not be deprived of his right 
to uh, his child. So, yes, the child should have access to the court, but the father should be reunited with the child because there was no evidence of abuse, abandonment, or neglect. So that's what I mean, that we, we came down squarely on both sides. What was the public reaction, at least in Florida, about what should happen to this little boy, Elian? And do you think now, in retrospect, there were any omens or echoes of our current family separation crisis? Well, I, I want to say I think the Elian Gonzalez saga changed Florida in many ways. I am the last person to try to pretend to speak for the Cuban-American community in Miami, so I am please, I am not doing that. But I do know that the major organization for representing the exile community in Miami, the Cuban-American National Foundation, essentially imploded after the Elian Gonzalez case because they came to realize from the polls that the overwhelming majority of the non-Cuban community, the black community, the non-Cuban Hispanic community overwhelmingly thought that the child should be reunited with his father. And the Cuban community in polling showed that Elian Gonzalez should be allowed to stay in this country and essentially separated from his father. Uh, this came as shockwaves, I think, to the Cuban-American community here in Miami. And they realized how out of touch they were with the rest of the community and the rest of the country. And that organization went into uh, several years of rethinking. And your question is interesting, and I have to confess I don't know the answer. And I would love to know the answer as to whether or not it reverberated with the Trump cruel and mean child separation policy that is going on right now. Hmm. Howard, you described Florida as a bunch of states mashed together. I'm paraphrasing, but I hope that's pretty fair. Yes, I think that's true. There's no way in the world to be one state. Right. Um, I mean, hey, it's a Gulf state and an eastern <laughs> seaboard state. There are no other states that do that, right? It's actually tied with Ohio as the state that has most frequently matched the national pick for president, at least since the beginning of 20th century, since um, <laughs> folks started keeping these stats. And the, the mm -hmm. I think Florida's vote for president has differed only twice from the national pick since 1928. Um, that's a pretty good run. Do you think of Florida as a bellwether, a predictor of how the rest of the country is going? Well, I think you make a very good point because Florida is so ideologically polarized and the country is so ideologically uh, polarized. But Florida, I think, is in many respects the face of the emerging America, especially Miami. It is, uh, it is such a diverse state. It may be the most diverse state. I think South Florida may be competing with uh, Los Angeles, not even New York, as the, maybe the most diverse area of, uh, of the country. Mm -hmm. It is the face of the emerging America. And in that respect, Florida does reflect, I think, the rest of the country. Howard, you are retiring after your 20 years of service to the ACLU of Florida. Um, is there a... Well, let me, if I can step in for <laughs> a second. Uh, 21 years in Florida <laughs> and 23 years prior to that as executive director of the ACLU of Michigan. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Michigan because I actually want to ask you, 
you spent 20 plus years uh, leading the ACLU in both states. How would you compare those gigs? Do civil liberties look the same in Michigan and in Florida? I, I realize they were in different time periods, too. So I don't mean to compare apples and oranges. But what would be your main takeaway doing civil liberties advocacy in those two jobs? Michigan, you know, like a lot of the upper Midwest, Wisconsin, Minnesota, you know, they come out of the progressive tradition, the labor union tradition. The ACLU actually in Michigan grew out of the UAW. And so there are some deep progressive roots there in the labor union. Florida is a new state. It's an invented state. You walk around Florida and it's hard to find people who were born in Florida. Right. And Florida is like a, a newly emerging state without that kind of history. And it is a far more conservative state. You go north of Orlando and you are back into the deep south. Um, I know Michigan has rural areas that are pretty conservative, but there is no part of Michigan that is the remnant of the uh, of the deep south. You know, let's take what we started talking about on restoration of voting rights. I, I don't think it would have been contemplated in Michigan that people would be blocked for voting for the rest of their lives. Florida was a Confederate state, and Florida had to figure out how to rob the freed slaves of any political power. There's significant differences between Florida and Michigan. Is there a standout career highlight for you? Oh, my God, there's so much. Just saving the right of privacy by one vote in the Constitution Revision Commission that meets only every 20 years. That happened this spring. I oh, my felt God, that's like constitutional brigadoon. It only meets every 20 years? Every 20 years, the Constitution Revision Commission wow. meets, and they have the power to place constitutional amendments directly on the ballot. There was a proposal to essentially uh, radically shrink the right of privacy, and that proposal lost by one vote. Oh, my God. I was so shocked and elated at that at the same time. But I'm lucky because the very last thing I worked on may be changing Florida forever by ending the system of lifetime felon disfranchisement and restoring the right to vote for as many as 1.4 million people. What are you looking forward to most in your retirement, Howard? Um, figuring out how to stay as politically active as I can. Democracy around the world and here in the United States is on the defensive. This scapegoating of immigrants I mean, this wasn't dreamt up by our president. He took a page out of the playbook from uh, European politicians where it's working in Hungary and Poland and Italy and uh, places like that. Democratic values are on the defensive, and I'm going to try to figure out a way to be as politically active as I can be to defend the values of democracy that brought me to the ACLU maybe 50 years ago. It sounds suspiciously unlike retirement, Howard, but I suspect that the people of Florida <laughs> are lucky for your view of retirement. <laughs> um, thank you so much for uh, joining us today, Howard, and giving us your your bird's eye view of a life in Florida. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to At Liberty. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you can, write us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. 